You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Nice to be with you here in the studio. I just got back from an exciting trip to Ikea. Oh, I thought it was an exciting trip to radio announcer class, the way you said that. You know, I'm sure I've mentioned this before. I was offered a job once uh, as uh, as a DJ. A DJ? I phoned into a radio station to make a request. I have heard this. Yeah, and no. the uh, it was the producer or manager was was working. He said, "Hey, would you be interested in being a DJ?" And I thought, "Oh, I'm not smart enough to do that." It was before so I went you to became university. a lawyer. I was instead. a high school dropout. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I wasn't comfortable with my rough English growing up in a simple prairie farm family of Ukrainian ethnic origin, and I wasn't uh, comfortable taking the job. But now here I am on the Driving Law podcast with Kyla Lee. Okie dokie then. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about this week, um, so we just need to jump right into it. And the first thing we're going to talk about is a recent case out of the BC Provincial Court. Um, This was from January 24th on a delay to a traffic ticket. Um, So this was an individual, Jean-Michel St. Martin, um, who was given a distracted driving ticket on March 8th, 2021. And it was scheduled for trial January 25th, 2023. And prior to trial, he filed an application for a stay of proceedings on the basis of the fact that his uh, right to be tried within a reasonable time um, was uh, violated on the basis of uh, the delay to the date. So the court sets out a great um, sort of chronology of the events. Um, indicating that March 8th, uh, he was charged and given the ticket. April 6th, he filed the notice of dispute. January 4th, 2022, if we all remember, the court shut down for a month because of the Omicron COVID-19 variant. But this wasn't when his court date was. Then uh, August 19th, he received a notice of hearing, um, which uh, was uh, dated for October 27th, 2022. And then he applied to adjourn it because a witness that he had was not available. And the trial was adjourned to January 2023. So there was a defense adjournment and a period of COVID court shutdown in the meantime. And he filed November 2nd uh, his application for a judicial stay. So what do you think happened, Paul? Timely application for a judicial stay. Yep. Um, and beyond the 18 months that we think is the ceiling that we, <laughs> is arguable, I know you have an argument that it should take less time than that. I think uh, other people would come back and say it's a traffic ticket and it's not as pressing and that it could take more time than that. Um, I think they granted the stay. They did. And what was really interesting in this case was Crown's argument. So Mr. St. Martin acknowledged that the period from the October 27th date to the January date was on him because he applied to adjourn it. And and so they were looking at the 19 and a half months from the date of the ticket uh, to the date, uh, the first court date. But he applies to adjourn it in circumstances where that date is just set by the court and sent Mm -hmm. to him and Mm -hmm. his witness is unavailable. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, 
there's only so much uh, blame that he can carry in any event. Go on, sorry. Well, um, <clears throat> the Crown says that the month of time that was deducted due to COVID was a discreet and exceptional event that uh, should also be deducted from the time frame, plus additional extra time, because all of those tickets that have been adjourned in that time frame, plus all the tickets that couldn't be set in that time frame, would have to be reset, and that's going to like have like a cascading effect of delay, basically. But still, this is a long time. <laughs> like, this is a long time to get your hearing. Yes. So the court says um, that the period between January 4th and January 28th of 24 days should be deducted from the overall delay, um, and then uh, points to a decision uh, in a case called Tan, where Judge Vander found that um, it's not possible for every matter that was adjourned to proceed immediately, and so the four-month backlog of cases in Judge Vander's case in Tan um, was something that had to be taken into account how long also would be required to reschedule those. And the court, um, nevertheless, still finds that there was a problem with the backlog. The court says at paragraph 10, In the case at Barr, Mr. St. Martin allegedly committed this infraction March 8, 2021. At the time, traffic court was operational and had resumed operations since July 13, 2020 in Kelowna. It is reasonable to think that by March 2021, the system would have caught up with most of the backlog from the first suspension. Any residual effect from the first suspension would have been modest. However, in reaction to another wave of COVID-19 cases, the court suspended operations again for 24 days. And the court basically says, I'm giving 40 days of delay to those 24 days. So the 24 plus... Some time to get your yeah, act together afterward. Like another you know, two weeks basically, um, to get your, uh, to get your act together. And the judge arrives in this case at that calculation by looking at the first four months suspension where two different judges have said, you know, those four months obviously don't count. That was a discrete event. And then the catch up from that also should be deducted from the delay. And he, he basically prorated it based on how much time was attributable to the period of catch-up that would have been required in that time frame. But he also says at paragraph 11, I note also that the system was likely in a better position to handle the second suspension since there would have been existing protocols, equipment, and procedures in place. Any effect arising from the second suspension of operations was naturally less dramatic as the system had already dealt with the situation before. Fair enough. There's uh, more plexiglass. There's better ventilation in some courthouses. They've been through this and they've set up for people to be able to work at home to schedule dates and things like that, government employees. Well, yeah. So it's not the same drastic stop that we saw in March 2020. Unlike in the March shutdowns where nobody knew what to do and we all had to figure it out and, and you know, rejig in response to a situation that just kind of seemed to appear overnight. I mean, I know we it didn't, but it seemed to. It seemed to appear overnight. This time, they knew how to handle it, and yet they did none of the things that they knew how to do when it came to traffic court. And the court doesn't touch on this. But I think it is a problem, if there are other cases with delay out there, that the court didn't make MS Teams hearings available as an option by application to the court for traffic court matters. 
Yeah, there's a problem there. I mean, obviously the judges identified it, and one wonders if the uh, if counsel for the um, accused here, or if the accused himself, if they were self-represented, made this argument. But it's a really good point, and that is, you know, first time around COVID, uh, when we were dealing with shutdowns, nobody was prepared for it, and so it was a dramatic effect, and, and it was not something that you could have accounted for, and therefore it shouldn't factor in. Second time around, we've got all of these systems in place. So can you can you deal with it the same way? No. I think in the end, there's another point here, though, and that is, what is the public interest in a traffic ticket proceeding? Um, when you weigh that against the, I mean, the, the whole idea of traffic tickets is to deter people in the future. The consequences are the fine and the points. Sometimes a driving prohibition, if you're an end driver, you've got a really bad driving record. But in most cases, it's just to deter the person in the future. And I think when you weigh the public interest against the, the, the suffering this individual went through as a result of these delays, and again, exacerbated because they weren't dealing with it as promptly as they should have been able to, uh, you know, that's where I, that's the reason I came to the conclusion and, you know, and when you asked me a minute ago that it, it was, it was thrown out. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, we're now a year after the second court shutdown and yet we're still dealing with sort of the fallout of this and, uh, but, but the fallout we're dealing with now is the labor shortage. It's the labor shortage. I meant the fallout of it on our court system. I know. It's the labor shortage in the court system. It's the labor shortage in police departments. It's the labor shortage in the court system. It's the Crown Council shortage. It's a judge's shortage. We just got a shortage of people to be able to run all the things that we need to do, which is a fascinating economic discussion. But this isn't the economics uh, podcast. Yeah, (laughs) no, I was going to say, I see what you're saying. I don't see the connection to driving law, but... What there is an interesting connection to driving law on, a saga that I have been following with a little bit of Uh, glee, um, is the Do Not Pay app. Yeah, you know, I heard about this uh, like a year and a half ago when he started, Mm -hmm. um, and then when AI started becoming a huge thing about a month ago, uh, this guy decided to exploit it. So it's an individual, I can't remember his name, Kylie, you could probably pull it up right now. Joshua Browder. Yeah, and he was going through university and he managed to get a bunch of tickets and he found ways of writing, you know, basically specious arguments, uh, probably more along the line of the the free men of the land arguments, but <laughs> just sending in letter after letter after letter uh, to dispute his tickets and he was succeeding in some of them, probably stymieing government officials by doing things that are unethical by the sounds of it. Um, and persuaded himself that he could create a legal app that would replace lawyers. Yeah, um, and so he did. I mean, he created the app. First, he started it with, like, consumer rights matters, which doesn't really replace lawyers because most of it is, like, disputing, you know, your airline doesn't give you a refund, so it generates a letter demanding that your airline give you a refund when they screwed you over, that type of stuff. And I, I have no problem with an AI for that. It's stuff that it's not worth it to hire a lawyer for um, and that most people can accomplish by themselves. And having some guidance on a relatively simple matter where there's no jeopardy makes sense. Sure, but I question whether or not it was ever AI because I found some discussion where people were saying they sent in their request on the thing. It came back hours and hours later and it sounded like somebody probably just wrote it and he probably just had a bunch of templates 
and was creating templates. A bunch of paralegals. And, and it wasn't a, well, probably not. I mean, he could have just had a, well, paralegals, whatever you call them. Uh, it could have been him for all you know. I mean, I don't know how many of these people were actually taking this risk to do it. Uh, but if you collect a number of letters and you just modify the letters, then you can send it back to the people and then they can use it. Of course, the problem is, in some cases, it's practicing law. Yes. And he's not he, a lawyer. You know, the the uh, man got too big for his britches because then he started to publicly say, my AI can get you out of traffic tickets. And he was going to have a very public case in which somebody used the AI connected to AirPods and the AI was going to tell him what to say in traffic court. And he was going on the news, he was tweeting about this constantly, it was getting a lot of media attention. I talked about it on um, TikTok. Uh, Mike Smith brought it up this week when I was on his show. Yep. Uh, just briefly, we didn't get into the discussion about it, but he mentioned it at the outset. Uh, I would have loved to have talked to him about it. Um, this fellow also said that he was going to, you know, pay somebody up to a million dollars to to uh, use his service at the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he offered a reward for somebody to use it in traffic court and said that they had it all set up and that it was going to happen sometime in the near future that he was going to have this earpod person going in. Well, what happened instead, the state bar in whatever state that was, came after him and said, nope. You can't practice law with a robot. You're not a lawyer. Your robot's not a lawyer. And we will bring an application in court to find you in violation of state bar rules. And because it's America, you can go to jail. Yeah. So, I mean, and each state, of course, makes their criminal law. So mm -hmm. they could make it even a criminal offense. But it might just be in contempt of the court order. Who knows? But they uh, threatened him with jail. And good thing, too, because there's just so many different variables when you're but defending Paul, somebody with one of these cases. You why, just can't rely on... Why didn't he get his AI to just represent him against the state bar in his hearing? Well, that's the that's the million-dollar <laughs> question I didn't ask. Yeah, why he could have just done that. If he was so confident about it, he should have just had him the state bar, rep, uh, the AI represent him at his, uh, at his you know, contempt hearing and the oh, yeah. application for an order and whatever... Uh, superior court level it was. Um, but yeah, it seems to me that, I mean, there may be an issue down the road, and certainly AI is, uh, can be a valuable tool for lawyers um, if you're using it right, but um, AI lawyer uh, has got a long, long way to go, and I can't imagine that it's ever going to be something that can be used that way in litigation. No. However, I have wondered, you know, when you're sitting there and you're conducting a cross-examination, and you're brilliant with your cross-examination, somehow you take into account more things than anybody I've ever seen. And, Maybe and I'm an AI. You are, you're, you're, you're basically a cross-examination robot. It's a wild thing to see. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've, I've been with people who are great at cross-examining. I think Neil Cobb was very impressive and Brian Barish in, in Edmonton. Uh, I've seen some great cross-examinations, but you were able to take more in. And I keep thinking to myself, you know, if I could be asking AI during the course, like chat GPT, during the course of my cross-examination, and it could take into account all of the things that I'm doing, because there's always things that you miss, right? Um, you know, that might be useful. However, 
it's a, it's a little ways away. Yes. Um, the last thing on this topic is I highly recommend everyone check out Catherine Tucson's Twitter account. It's at Catherine Tucson. And she has been systematically, I think she's a lawyer, but also has a background in like software development or programming or something. Um, because she has been systematically tearing apart the not-so-AI features of this AI. Uh, she's been banned from the app on multiple occasions, but she's also found a lot of people who've tried to cancel their do-not-pay subscriptions who have continued to be charged, which I find fascinating because one of the things that do-not-pay is continuing to do since it stopped practicing law is help people fight fraudulent charges, which it seems like they're actually committing. So they're stealing people's money by the sound of it. Uh, Catherine Tucson is at K I. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> K A T H R Y N T E W S O N on Twitter, and she's great because she's like actively challenging him. She's like sending questions out to him, challenging him, and uh, and really investigating this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's great. That's an actual citizen journalist thing that uh, that she's yeah, it's fantastic. So, with that, it's time for a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice, Kraken Eric McGracken. Welcome to this week's McGracken Moment. Today, I want to talk about, uh, I've got no better word for it. I'm going to call it shameful. I'm going to talk about ICBC's shameful enhanced care meat chart. So here's how it works, folks, under no fault. You can't sue the at-fault driver, as, as folks now know, if you're injured, for your pain and suffering. Instead, under no fault, what ICBC's done is they've come up with something called a permanent impairment assessment. And if you have really bad injuries, so this doesn't even apply for most injuries, but if you have really bad injuries and they don't heal, ICBC has come up with a formula where you can get a little bit of money uh, for having permanent consequences from a crash. And I just want to share some of these details just so you understand how much you're going to be shortchanged if you're badly injured in a BC crash. So here's how the meat chart works. Other than certain really catastrophic injuries, ICBC says if you suffer permanent impairment from an injury in a crash, they've come up with a formula to say how much, or more honestly, how little money you're going to get for that permanent impairment. So a figure of about $167,000 is the starting figure. And then you look at this meat chart. It's technically called the permanent impairment regulation. but Let's call it the meat chart. So you look at the meat chart, you find your injury, and you multiply that number by the percentage they give you. I just want to give you some quick examples of what folks are looking at. If you fracture your sternum, and it never heals, and you have permanent problems, you get 1% of that number. 
that's about $1,600. If you fracture your forearm and it never heals correctly, same figure, 1%, $1,600. If you get your leg amputated above the knee, you get 35% of that. That's just under $60,000. If you break your femur, the biggest bone in your body, and it never heals properly, non-specified abnormal healing, 1% of that figure, $1,675. Folks, that's the real reality of no fault. Um, the government sold it to the public saying, ICBC is losing money, we'll make you pay less in premiums, and we're somehow going to pay out more to victims of crashes. That was a lie. Here's the truth. When you're the victim of a catastrophic crash, you can expect very little from ICBC under no fault. These numbers are embarrassing, but I thought I'd shed some light on them, and I think I'm going to shed some more light on these numbers in coming weeks. Thank you. Over the next few weeks, uh, Eric is going to be discussing more about ICBC and their horrific meat chart and uh, the ways that uh, this is basically designed to strip your rights away and not compensate you fairly for your injuries. So I'm very interested to see how this uh, series of moments uh, plays out. But this week, I thought we could talk about our... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week! A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. We always talk about the ridiculous driver of the week I know, every week. I love week. this one. And I love this it's one. It's funny. Again, I think I said this recently, but for a little while there, you know, there was a there was a we, there was a shortage. There was a supply chain issue with ridiculous drivers of the week, <laughs> but it seems to have been resolved because boy oh boy, there's been a lot lately, and we've had trouble picking uh, yeah. who it's going to be. We this week though, we don't even have to go across the border. Uh, no, all no. we have to do is go to Vaughn Mills in Ontario, uh, a shopping mall there, where a person stole an Audi. Which, in and of itself, not ridiculous. But then drove it, and this is all on security footage that you can see online. Drove it into the doors of the mall, late at night when the mall was closed. Through the mall, riding around, and you can see it kind of like losing traction on the slippery mall floors. And it parks outside of a Best Buy. And apparently a bunch of stuff got stolen from the Best Buy or the Source or whatever. Some, some electronics store. And then drives out the mall. My favorite part is like when it gently nudges the doors open. Yeah, and I was thinking, is this dangerous operation of a motor vehicle? But there's nobody around who's at risk. Yeah. So, you know, maybe... Uh, but it may, is a marked departure, Paul. It is a marked departure. <laughs> it is marked. But they say, is it really dangerous? You know, who's, yes. who's, at, who's at risk here? There's nobody in the mall. Could have been a security guard in there. I don't know. Does the Motor Vehicle Act apply to the inside of a mall? I don't think so. So the, I don't know. Dangerous just, driving is you know, a criminal code I would charge. still discourage anybody from trying it. Yeah. Um, it looks like there's carpet on the floor in that mall. I'm not At really some sure. Point, yeah. yeah. Um, and I wonder what it's like to drive on carpet. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I the sad thing, like the really sad thing about this, is I watched that and I was like, I wonder if I could do that with my car. 
And I'm not going to, obviously. So if you see somebody driving around a mall in their car, it's not me. <laughs> well, uh, this was an interesting thing. So the vehicle is stolen and it looks like the windows are tinted in it. Maybe not, but it looks like the windows are tinted. So you couldn't really identify the person apparently on the CCTV video. So it's a reason not to have tinted windows, I guess. Yeah, I guess um, no. Because when your car is stolen and ends up driving around in a mall... Um, anyway, I would, I would be, I would be entertained, I suppose, if it was my vehicle that somebody took, mm -hmm. because you've got a topic of discussion yeah. for years to come. Yeah. It reminds me of a case I had several years ago, uh, with a, a motorcycle in a mall, but this takes the cake. Yes, it does. Yes. Anyway, very entertaining. That is certainly a ridiculous driver of the week. And from Canada's other Florida... Ontario. All right. Well, that's our podcast. If you have any driving law related issues, please give us a call or you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.